CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy uh, to have you with us for our show today. You know, there, there are so many different directions we could go in today. So much political news is kind of popping all over the place. Um, but I realized that the best way to organize today's show is to do it around the fact that two of our panelists today are both sitting in their cars in a parking lot of a gun shop in Smyrna waiting for a major announcement from Governor Brian Kemp. So I can't think of a better way to start today than to talk about the fact that Governor Kemp is essentially going to, in a short while, announce that he will support legislation for what is known kind of loosely as constitutional carry, but we'll talk about what that means to Governor Kemp with all of the members of our panel. But as to those two who are in their cars waiting for the announcement, one is our regular Wednesday uh, AJC partner, uh, Greg Bluestein. Uh, you know him as one of the top political reporters in the Southeast. And Greg, uh, thank you for being with us. Greg, we should point out to our listeners <clears throat> that although we normally don't talk about it, You've done this show numerous times from the scene, from your car at the scene of political events you're either about to walk into or have just finished. Yeah, unfortunately, the campaigns don't cater to us. <laughs> they don't necessarily work around our schedules all the time. So we're often on the road. Um, and, you know, you've seen the inside of my beautiful Honda Accord many times. And here I am again. <laughs> Emma Hurt, uh, Axios Atlanta, is also sitting in her car at the uh, parking lot uh, waiting for the camp event. How are you doing, Emma? Doing great. Built a beautiful day here in Smyrna. Um, and I would just say, Greg, I mean, they did set it to start at 10.15. So they did, you know, they gave us like Better a than 9.45. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, we're also joined today by GPB uh, public policy reporter Riley Bunch. Riley, how have you been? Doing great. It's, you know, kind of a crazy time right now. We're talking about Georgia politics heating up, but there's a couple of anniversaries I know we're going to talk about today. But it's just crazy to think January 6th happened yesterday or a year ago tomorrow, you know, things like that. So Absolutely. it's a weird time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will talk about uh, that a bit, as well as uh, the anniversary today, one year since John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were elected in their runoffs to the U.S. Senate, tipping the balance of the Senate to uh, the Democratic Party. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But before we do, we should also introduce the managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Leroy Chapman, who is back with us. How you doing, Leroy? Uh, I am fantastic, Bill. Thanks for having me, and uh, it's a great time to be in journalism. Uh, boy, we we will all second that statement, I think. Um, all right, Greg, so let's, let's talk about this uh, Kemp News Conference this morning. What exactly is he preparing to announce? Yeah, you mentioned it, they call it constitutional carry, although that is a very broad definition. Um, but essentially, it's, he, he, he wants to back a plan that would allow Georgians to con carry concealed weapons without a state permit. Uh, it would allow, it would vastly expand where Georgians can carry their concealed weapons. 
um, and it would be probably the biggest uh, expansion of gun rights since at least 2014, when then Governor Nathan Deal signed what critics called the Guns Everywhere Bill that allowed uh, more people to carry weapons into places like churches and restaurants and, and schools and government buildings. Um, we've taken a look at a draft of what Kemp's remarks are likely to be, Emma Hurt. Um, and among other things, he uh, is set to say building a safer, stronger Georgia starts with hardworking Georgians having the ability to protect themselves and their families in the face of rising violent crime across the country. Law-abiding citizens should have their constitutional rights protected. Um, and clearly, Emma, there is a political side to this announcement today. Yeah, I mean, obviously there is. Governor Kemp has a very strong primary challenge now, but it's important to note that, you know, he has always talked about gun rights, said it was a priority. Last year, tried to pass an expansion of gun rights, and that stalled in the legislature. That would have, um, I believe, allowed, uh, required Georgia to, um, to recognize other states' concealed weapons permits. But, you know, things are different this year. Partially things are different because Speaker Ralston has indicated that he's open to constitutional, something like constitutional carry. And, and last year he was um, behind the stall of HB 218, um, Kemp's attempt last year. So politics is always changing um, the way that these things may go down. Uh, Leroy, this is clearly one of those hot-button issues that will uh, find a divided voting, voting public uh, taking different positions on this. Absolutely. Uh, so this is, again, the fruit of a primary that uh, is already he heated uh, that will be smoldering pretty soon and will uh, be sort of unlike uh, any we've perhaps seen in modern Georgia political history. So being able to outflank uh, your opponent uh, with something like this, which is speaking not to all of Georgia, this speaks to the primary voters. And so, uh, so that's what that is. And I think the second part of this, too, is, um, you know, this is the governor. He's proposing uh, something that would change, uh, you know, how um, the, the process by which uh, someone can carry a concealed weapon. And uh, I'd love to, to hear from him. Uh, the number of times or the scenarios by which uh, Georgians who are eligible to, to have uh, uh, concealed ca carry are, are denied, because many of the reasons why uh, some are denied are very good reasons. And um, therefore, um, as a newspaper, we'll be looking at, you know, the practical application of what this might mean. Riley? You know, I don't think it's surprising to see Kemp bring this specific issue up. It was something he talked about his in his campaign in 2018, but it didn't make a priority, you know, during his state of the state addresses, during um, pushing other legislative reforms in the legislature. But it is something that, you know, there is a strong likelihood of passing in the Republican held legislature. Yeah, we, we know there was, Emma, as Emma mentioned, that gun reciprocity law um, that was stalled last year by the speaker. And that had a large part to do with the, the um, horrific spa shootings that we we saw. Um, but that this also brings up an issue that we're going to see in the legislative session this year, which is, are we going to see these hot button issues over some more common sense reforms that we want to be pushing? You know, how much of these social issues are going to drive the conversation? And it's going to be a lot. Uh, Greg, let's point out where you are exactly. You are, the, the event is scheduled to take place at 
a gun store which bills itself as the world's largest gun store, right? Yeah, this is called Adventure Outdoors. We're in a giant Smyrna parking lot uh, where, yes, it is a, a huge gun range. And it's also the home of many Republican rallies over the years, including a runoff rally last year that featured Travis Tritt, the country music singer, um, right here in this very same parking lot I'm at right now. And it always, you know, brings back, just to kind of highlight what folks have been saying on uh, earlier, um, Kemp endorsed this idea in 2018. This was something that was that was a became a Republican litmus test in that 2018 campaign for 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 governor. But also at the same time, never really put his political, um, pro, never made this a political priority for him until now. And his endorsement, this is one of the first legislative agenda items, the, the main legislative items that he's, he's actually voiced support for. Um, we don't know much of his legislative agenda yet, and we're only a, a less than a week before the legislative session. But we do know that he's putting his political capital behind this. And that says something about this election season. Emma? And I just think it's, it, it's interesting because as we think about, you know, 2018 to now, we would have assumed a year ago that Kemp would be most focused on beating Stacey Abrams and that we wouldn't see, you know, the vestige of the Jake ads with, um, you know, Governor Kemp in a pickup truck holding a gun and pointing a gun at um, this guy trying to date his daughter. Um, but here we are and things have changed. I think the Kemp team would, would bristle at that thing. Obviously, as we've said, Kemp has always been pro um, gun rights, but his, his priorities have had to change with this political reality. So um, I want to talk about this just a little bit more. First of all, Riley, uh, Speaker Ralston has indicated that he, he very well might support legislation uh, around, again, this vague issue of constitutional carry. Uh, so we suspect that the tracks may already be greased for this measure to get to move forward pretty, uh, uh, if not quickly, certainly without too much uh, protest from certainly other Republican leaders. But how are Democrats uh, going to address this? It's interesting. Let me add this. I'm fascinated by the fact that that Marty Kemp, the governor's wife, is part of this news conference today uh, because they're making it clear uh, that women have a vested interest, a stake, it seems to me, in uh, having the ability to carry a weapon. They don't want this to become a gender issue where, you know, gun carrying is a masculine sort of thing. Well, I think that, you know, that's including the entire Republican Party, even women in this issue, works to the GOP's advantage, right? But as I mentioned before, this is going to be one of those issues that comes up during the legislative session that Democrats are going to use in their advantage too, right? Look, the GOP wants to push all these loosening of gun laws, right? You know, on top of all the election change that happened last year, it it just sets the stage for such a tumultuous session um, ahead of the primary, ahead of the next election season. And also, you know, we have to remember so many of the lawmakers are running for higher office, right, and Democrats included. So if they don't stand up against these more social issue pieces of legislation in a strong way, it hurts Democrats as much as Republicans not bringing this kind of legislation. Uh, Leroy, one last point about this before we move on. And uh, I've noticed this in a number of uh, Kemp's uh, statements recently. He has uh, once again 
Um, and he's been using it throughout his tenure as governor, but it was certainly a hallmark of his campaign as well. The phrase hardworking Georgians. In this case, it's building a safer, stronger Georgia starts with hardworking Georgians having Georgians having the ability to protect themselves and their families. There are many people who think that phrase is a pointed reference that distinguishes the people who he feels um, are uh, uh, different than uh, uh, than those who take advantage of the social safety network. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Well, well uh, <laughs> long uh, before uh, Kemp ran for governor um, for a while now, uh, and you can go back to um, you know even Mitt Romney and talking about the uh, 47 percent. <clears throat> There's been this whole makers and takers mentality uh, among some Republicans who say that. Uh, you know, the, our, our core voters are the folks who make America work, and everyone else are the people who benefit from, from us. So that, that phrasing is intentional, uh, and in a primary, it's intended to say, I'm speaking to you, to these people. And, and there is an undercurrent to it, so yes. Um, and, and just to amplify something that, uh, that, that Riley said, too, about um, the, the implication of women being involved in this and this being uh, sort of cast as something that is not gender specific. Uh, that that he has to do that because all, everything that uh, both he and Purdue uh, do to outflank each other to the right, uh, they're going to have to answer to that in short order when we get to a general election. And so uh, that that's uh, it, it's it's shrewd, uh, it's necessary, and we'll see more of that sort of programming where, uh, on the on the one hand, he's he's trying to outflank. They will try to outflank each other, but on the other hand, too they'll have an eye toward a general election where they're going to have to walk away from some of this stuff too in order to win a, a closely contested Georgia. And uh, so, so that, that's going to happen too. Uh, Greg, let me give you a chance to wrap this up for us before we move on. Yeah, at the same time that Republicans are moving to the right on guns, Democrats are moving towards the left. And, th- and that, that might make sense now. That might seem like it's normal, but not so long ago, Georgia Democrats were running as NRA Democrats. Uh, Jason Carter in the 2014 campaign mm-hmm. for governor even voted for a giant, that giant gun rights expansion that I just mentioned earlier. So Democrats have, have now uniformly opposed um, uh, these expansions in a way that they weren't not so long ago because polls are indicating not just left-leaning voters, but more centrist voters as well are, are, are firmly opposed uh, to these sort of legislation. So this is clearly a, an effort from Kemp um, to energize conservative voters that he might not have had to do. Uh, had David Perdue not been in this contest. Okay, uh, Greg, but but one thing about the Jason Carter in, uh, endorsement of a gun uh, bill, uh, he got a lot of criticism from Democrats for doing that, and there are many people who felt that worked against him as he tried to get Republic, uh, Democratic votes, right? He did. He said he wanted to take guns off the table. He didn't want to become a wedge issue. He, he voted for it um, to to keep the focus on expanding Medicaid and other, other priorities of, of his at the time. Uh, but he was not alone. You know, there were a lot of Democrats who opposed it, but there's a, a decent number of Democrats who also supported expanding gun rights at the time, um, echoing, you know, what Governor Roy Barnes, uh, you know, who, he ran as an NRA Democrat. He, he had the NRA's endorsement. Um, and so, so it wasn't too long ago that Democrats had a very different stance on guns. Okay. Um, let's move on. Um, 
Riley, uh, yesterday on the show, I gave out figures about the number of new COVID cases that I thought had been reported as of Monday. It turned out that it was only late yesterday or in the middle of the day yesterday that uh, the Georgia DPH was finally able to give us data on how many new cases, how many new hospitalizations had taken place over the long four-day uh, New Year's weekend. And it turns out that the number is pretty staggering. Some 60,000 new COVID-19 cases in the state of Georgia just over that four-day uh, period. Um, and I, I mention it now because at the same time that we get those numbers, we're uh, seeing Republicans in the state um, rejoicing over the fact that um, the uh, Attorney General, Chris Carr, and Governor Kemp have won another battle to uh, uh, stop a federal mandate, which would have required mask wearing in uh, Head Start programs. Um, and I find the juxtapositioning of those two things kind of interesting right now, Riley. Well, I think it's also really good context to context to include that the DPH kind of crash and this struggle to report data is so reminiscent of the early days of the pandemic when we were seeing these huge spikes. And I think it's important to mention when we talk about the severity of the Omicron variant. But pivoting to that lawsuit, you know, this a judge blocked part of Biden's vaccine mandate that would, like you said, require Head Start students across the country. This is a federal funded program for early learning for students. I think it has some 380, I think the AJC reported locations across Georgia, um, but it blocked a mask mandate in, for those students that is about two years old and up. And this is another win in the federal court system for Republicans that are spending a lot of time and money to push back against Biden's federal vaccine mandate. And I think it's really interesting to see when you compare it to the election lawsuits that we see Republicans push in federal courts that are not winning. You know, they're, they are not being successful, but you're seeing Republicans win on this kind of COVID public policy front, which is really interesting. And I, I wonder if there will be a, a case where they don't win one of these. But right now, Republicans are seeing huge wins in courts with this. Emma? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but it just having Biden in the White House gives uh, Georgia Republicans who don't agree on uh, a lot of things right now something to agree on and something to unite behind. And um, it's, uh, it's almost a, a political gift in some way um, for there to be a, an, a very clear opponent. And Kemp and Carr have been using their offices and platforms to take that to the next level. And as Riley said, it's been working. Um, Leroy, as this Omicron variant uh, spirals out of control, and, and let me be cautious here, uh, Georgia DPH has not told us whether this big spike over the four days is necessarily uh, propelled by Omicron as opposed to Delta. But as Omicron does uh, spread so rapidly, uh, it's interesting to watch how not just uh, Governor Kemp, but Republican uh, governors and leaders in other states Right now, in an election year, a little cautious about how far they want to go in mitigating uh, in mitigation efforts uh, because their base is so against things like mask mandates. Um, remote working is always uh, an issue for uh, some of them. Anything that smacks of a government effort to uh, impose its will on the people. 
So, um, you know, we've, uh, during the pandemic, uh, what's been pretty clear is that there's been a big impact with misinformation. And also the politicalization of this uh, has meant that being able to cherry pick some facts to create a narrative uh, has been, uh, has served some advantage uh, throughout this. Uh, and one thing about Omicron is that if, because it, uh, the, the, so far it's, it's less deadly, um, folks who get it, uh, the symptoms are more like the common cold. Uh, and if you're a Republican who has <clears throat> chosen to downplay the severity of this in order to be able to support, or to say that, uh, these, uh, mandates are onerous, uh, there's a little bit of, uh, data there to support, uh, the threat so to speak. And so it's all about the, the, the conversation and the context. So, so that, that's really kind of an explanation as to why at this particular moment where we've seen an escalation, uh, but some of the worst of what we've not seen, that we've seen before, which are hospitalizations, deaths, uh, hospitalizations are going up, but deaths aren't. Uh, you can cherry pick your facts and you can, and you can basically make a case that, that uh, mandates are onerous, that people should be able to take care of themselves. So that, that's kind of the moment we're in. But the thing about that, of course, is that we don't know what the next moment's going to be. So to have the public on, on that type of footing where they believe that this is not a threat, but we don't know how severe the next mutation is going to be. So from a standpoint of leadership, uh, there, there's uh, some obvious danger there. Greg? It seems like if it can be a political issue in Georgia in 2022, it will be a political issue in Georgia in 2022. And every decision Kemp makes might not be com you know, completely influenced by the epic squeezes in between David Perdue on the right and Stacey Abrams on the left, but many of them will be. And you're already seeing this, not just with these, with these legal battles over masks and the vaccine mandates, but even, even you know, the decision by local school districts to close their doors and, and offer only online virtual learning um, this week, including my kids' <laughs> school district in DeKalb County, uh, David Perdue immediately attacked Governor Kemp over that, saying that he caved to liberals, even though uh, a reminder that he has no power over what local school districts do when, when it comes to closing doors uh, for, for virtual learning. Um, that it, The state doesn't have that, 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 that power to to block schools unless they take certain executive actions to do so. Um, so it, it's just everything is going to be politicized, and this and and this mask mandate business with um, uh, with the rise of variants beyond Omicron will continue to play into the election campaign season. Um, Riley, we we know that uh, this is a winning proposition, or we imagine it is <clears throat> for many in the Republican base. Um, and we also don't know where COVID is going to stand once we move toward a general election campaign down the road. But I find it interesting that while President Biden, one of the reasons we know his approval numbers have dropped so dramatically is because a great percentage of the country doesn't think he's somehow done the right thing in, in, in mitigating uh, the virus. Uh, the question is, what, if this is an ongoing problem well into 2022, whether in the, if he wins his, general, his primary battle, whether this is an issue that will uh, cause uh, uh, Brian Kemp some difficulties in his reelection campaign and, and a campaign against Stacey Abrams. I think Brian Kemp has done a, a fair job throughout the pandemic of keeping that in the back of his mind, though. You know, we, we've seen him 
stay on message about a lot of the things that he will absolutely not do, right? Absolutely no mask mandates, absolutely no vaccine requirements. You know, we had restrictions. Georgia, quote, never shut down for business, right? Um, I think Kemp has done a good job of kind of sticking with that, but it's definitely going to be an issue that comes up in 2022, especially when um, we don't know, like you said, Bill, where the virus is going to be. It could be much worse. And then and and Democrats as well can use this as such a standing for their uh, Medicaid and Medicare arguments. Right. You know, think of the impact of that during the pandemic. And it's definitely something that we are going to see Stacey Abrams, you know, use in her campaign and a more policy driven way, I think. Um, But but Kemp has really, truly stayed on his same course throughout the entire pandemic, I would think. Okay, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of Political Rewind for today. I'm looking at the list of topics that we have uh, available to discuss, and there's just so many of them. We'll get to a few of them after these messages. AJC Managing Editor Leroy Chapman, Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurt, GPB's Riley Bunch, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein join me for today's show. A quick program note before we return to our conversation. Um, Tomorrow morning, uh, NPR is going to broadcast a special looking back on the one-year anniversary of the uh, insurrection at the United States Capitol, one of the darkest days um, in American history, really. Um, And so we're going to move aside on the 9 o'clock political rewind to give room for that NPR programming. But we will be doing a live 2 o'clock show tomorrow afternoon, so we hope you can join us for that. Among other things, we'll be talking about Johnny Isaacson, whose funeral service is tomorrow, and we'll duck into that service and listen a little to what people are saying about uh, uh, the late Senator Johnny Isaacson. So just uh, for tomorrow, uh, we're going to give way to NPR at 9 o'clock. Okay, let's get back uh, to the conversation. Um, So, uh, Greg, we already said two big anniversaries. Uh, One, the insurrection tomorrow, one year since that took place. But today's a really important day. This is the day that Georgia voters went to the polls in the U.S. Senate runoff elections and uh, elected John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, gave control of the United States Senate to Democrats. And after Georgia went for Joe Biden in November, it began this sense that Georgia is now more in play than it's ever been in decades and decades and becomes one of the most important states in the country in 2022. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about impact in Georgia, of course, um, giving Democrats hope for actually winning a statewide contest in 2022, but also the national impact. I mean, the, the effect this had on Joe Biden's administration, um, the, the cabinet members that sailed through uh, Senate approval that would, would not have gotten that such, such easy passage, um, the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package that would have been probably significantly smaller uh, if Republicans controlled the, the U.S. Senate because there was already a lot of pushback on, on previous efforts. Um, the, the infrastructure package, uh, the, the fact that there is even debate about uh, voting rights legislation and the Build Back Better plan. I mean, none of this uh, would have been possible if, if Democrats hadn't swept those contests and flipped control of the chamber. And also, of course, on the Republican side, 
um, the fact that Republicans are still as focused as ever on the 2020 election fraud uh, lies um, plays into that because they don't have control of the U.S. Senate. They can't. They they don't have any avenue to push forward their own agenda on Capitol Hill. Uh, probably helps reframe that, that that conversation even more to focus on 2020 than 2022. Yeah, you know, Riley, that strikes me as a, a, a everything Greg said is absolutely correct. But that final point he made, it in many ways is the reason the big lie. Uh, uh, perseveres to this day and continues to drive so much of the agenda, uh, both in Washington, but here in Georgia particularly. Um, We know, for example, Riley, that there are going to be uh, uh, pieces of legislation introduced in this upcoming session to further uh, uh, restrict voting in the state. Not only are we going to see a bill from Burt Jones running for lieutenant governor supported by uh, uh, former President Trump, to eliminate drop boxes. But now there's going to be a bill uh, calling for the elimination of most of the electronic voting machines in the state, which the state just spent, what, $138 million to put in place, and a return to hand balloting. All of this driven by the false claims of Donald uh, Trump and his allies. And I think it's a really interesting thing to talk about when we talk about how much control the Democrats have at a federal level, right? Because even though we see this unified control and we have these this voting power in the Senate now where you can override your Republican colleagues, you know, there there was such a mirror held up to the country of how much power Republicans held legislatures truly have. And I think that this was um, yesterday, there was actually a press conference um, in Congress with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Warnock was among the lawmakers there who basically came out and said, you know what, we're going to use our our tie-breaking power a little bit more strongly to get federal voting rights reform passed this month because um, we're seeing this kind of change in the Republican-held legislatures. Warnock mentioned that um, uh, proposal to eliminate ballot drop boxes. So I think we may see, you know, Democrats at the federal level act a little bit more aggressively on this voting rights issue because it was so proven that Republican-held legislatures have so much power. Leroy? Yeah, so what we're talking about here, again, is uh, Georgia being – having uh, an outsized influence now on a bunch, a couple of national debates, and voting is probably top of the list, right? So, and if you look at where we've come from just uh, a little bit more than a year ago, and I have to give uh, Greg and uh, David Wickard and Mark Nisi a shout-out for uh, the package that they did, which uh, is on AJC.com right now. Um, what we're talking about really is uh, our voting system is fragile, uh, our voting system not only needs laws that are constitutional, but people who are willing to put their own uh, interest aside in order to be, in order to uh, give the American people, Georgians, uh, a voting system that works for them and that we've got uh, laws that benefit everyone, uh, that the playing field is equal, and that uh, no matter the result, we all stand by them. <laughs> So for, for generations, I think we've all lived with the idea that that was something that would always happen in America until now. So I say all that just to say that on the federal level, Democrats are energized because what they see is a continuation of laws that are being proposed that are about election advantage, uh, not necessarily about improving the system and making it 
uh, more fair and accessible for everyone, but it's meant to take advantage of uh, political, uh, 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 take advantage of political strategy. And, and that's going to continue. Emma, you jump know, in. Yeah, thinking about one year after the runoffs and, and now that Senator Warnock is in office, you know, having voting rights as a national issue, he has this um, really rare uh, gravitas to bring to the issue as the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which Martin Luther King Jr. and his father were both pastors of as well. And, it, you know, we've seen this get tied up. We saw Senator Schumer um, set Martin Luther King Day as a deadline to try to get this through. We, we saw Martin Luther King the third threatened to or, um, encourage people to withhold celebration of MLK Day unless federal voting um, legislation is passed. And having Warnock in the Senate um, makes a big difference when they're talking about it. You saw him speaking with Senator Schumer yesterday, and it's just another example and, and perhaps the most um, uh, relevant example right now to the fact that Senators Ossoff and Warnock are wielding more power than the average freshman senators would. I mean, within a month when the American Rescue Plan was passed, they had a like a private press conference with Leader Schumer, which would be kind of unheard of for uh, freshman senators, but it speaks to the remarkable way they, remarkable way they were elected a year ago. Riley, um, uh, Sam Burmistos just pointed out to me that you just we just posted a story um, on the GPB News website that you uh, published, uh, that you wrote on Warnock's uh, uh, push for voting rights, especially in response uh, to uh, the latest news about the Omicron variant, which doesn't seem to be creating too many problems. Uh, he believes for uh, Republicans being concerned about it, they're more concerned about, he says, suppressing the vote. Here's the quote you have from him. Think about that in the middle of a pandemic with the Omicron variant. We don't know what the days ahead will bring. Some think that their duty is to get rid of drop boxes. It is very clear what the Republican Party is up to. They're trying to make it harder for some people to vote. He also uh, said uh, in in his news conference that uh, there are going to be Republicans who are going to be going to the King celebration at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, and he finds that there's a certain hypocrisy in their uh, in their efforts to pass new voting laws and honoring Dr. King. Yeah, and I think these were kind of stinging words from Warnock yesterday that we don't always hear from him. You know, he's not always bringing up his service at the pulpit like he 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 was very very passionate about that yesterday in a way that we don't see in a while we haven't seen um in a while i i would say um and i think it, it really truly is because there it's a frustration level right they have all this power at the federal level but they're continuing to see this push by republican um, legislatures across the country where they're being successful and i would also argue you know a lot of these things that we're seeing filed in the legislature are by um, lawmakers who are seeking higher office right this whole um, concern about campaign stunts kind of dominating the legislature this year but i also think that warnock he is up for re-election, right? This is his main issue. If he does not go full force on this, you know, what is he going to go full force on? So it, it was pretty stinging words from him yesterday. Um, all right. Uh, thank you for uh, all of that. Uh, Greg, I'd like to turn to the other anniversary, which, of course, is uh, one that people are going to be spending a lot of time talking about. They have been already this week and certainly will be tomorrow. It was one year ago today that uh, uh, the Trump-supporting uh, insurrectionists stormed the United States 
uh, Capitol, a, a horrific uh, event. Uh, we were on the air live as that unfolded uh, because we were doing a live show at 2 o'clock that day. And um, like most Americans, I certainly am not going to forget uh, what I saw, even while we were on the air watching the uh, show move forward. Greg, your thoughts about tomorrow? Yeah, I woke up January 6th thinking the big story would be the, the, the formal calls of, of, of the runoffs, right? We were, we were playing a big, giant front-page package, and then it turned out that the, the biggest election we've had in Georgia in modern history ended up going below the fold because of the January 6th insurrection. And I'll never forget kind of being groggy, watching the, the, the live feeds of, of, of this all happening and listening to your show. Um, and it, it just, it took a while for, for the magnitude of this to hit me. Uh, and it probably took until going to the state capitol where Governor Kemp had called a hast- hastily called a press conference where he said that we will remain secure and that we will, that, that Georgia National Guardsmen will be pr- protecting the capitol because he didn't want the state capitol turned into an armed camp for it to strike home to me about how um, uh, just what a threat this was to American democracy and how important it is for us uh, in the media and, and, and our listeners to remember what happened and to not let people try to whitewash and, and, and lionize um, these insurrectionists as some kind of heroes for storming the Capitol and trying to block the peaceful transition of power in a democracy, um, because that's exactly what's happening now. There, there are several events tomorrow that plan to call these folks patriots when, when of course, they're not. Um, and they're being charged in the court of law, and, and, and we'll see how that turns out. But either way, we, we saw with our very, very own eyes um, what these, 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 this violent mob tried to do on January 6th. And Bill, you know, you brought up the taping of that show. I was actually on that show that day, and I will yeah, never, that's right. you were. ever forget that. It was uh, me, Tamar, Tamar Halliman at the AJC, and Fred Smith. And we were on the show to talk about the significance of Warnock being elected as the first black U.S. senator from Georgia. And I, our conversation had to pivot, and your producers so skillfully were breaking news to us on air. And I will never, ever forget that moment for as long as I live. And, you know, thinking now, a year later, it is going to be so important about how we talk about that event. Like Greg brought up how the media remembers that event. It's so, so important. And I think this first year anniversary will be mark how we talk about it going forward in terms of how politicians react to it, how local parties, GOP parties react to it, right? This year anniversary is so important. And it it gave me chills when you mentioned that show because it was so – it, it was so shocking. It was so shocking, and I don't think a lot of people could have even fathomed that that would have happened. Um, Leroy, uh, as Greg Bluestein already pointed out, the AJC had to get, get, move into action very, very quickly to respond to that story and get a paper out, uh, get web stories out as quickly as possible, and then a paper for the next day. We, we did. Uh, and the one thing that I will never forget is desperately texting Tia Mitchell, who is our Washington, D.C. correspondent, who was inside the Capitol when it was happening, who was moved uh, by uh, Capitol Police, Secret Service, and everyone who had to respond uh, once there was a breach, uh, and to not hear from her for a long time, uh, and to have to rely on other sources as you can get them 
just to make sure that uh, someone you're responsible for is safe. Uh, and then to hear after, as she talked about uh, what she heard, uh, but also what she could see uh, on some of the feeds that she was able to get. So uh, imagine being uh, in the building and then being able to see what was happening on the exterior and then what happened after the breach. So uh, just harrowing moments. And um, so it was um, something that uh, I did not expect, and I don't think any of us did. Uh, the peaceful transfer of power for us, again, is something that in our, our lifetimes is something that we've always expected. But we did raise the question about this with this particular president. And um, our worst fears uh, came, became a reality. And so on that day, if you're in the media, uh, like Greg said, I mean, we were at the governor's office. Um, it's not only what's happening in D.C., but what could happen in Georgia. And we were scrambling reporters out to the, uh, to the Georgia State House to see what would happen. Uh, we have a reporter who is very good at tracking extremism, and we were looking at uh, what some of that messaging might might mean. And it was a harrowing time, and one that uh, this nation should never forget. Emma, um, I assume you were still reporting at WABE at that point. I was, and you know, I got bumped off of the NPR uh, um, rundown to talk about uh, Warnock and Ossoff because of this. Um, which was kind of incredible to think about if it just had, had known the results. Um, and, and yeah, I think I kind of remember I, Riley and Greg, I guess you were there too at the press conference at the Capitol, or maybe Riley were on air. I don't know, but it was such a dazed moment. We we're all just sort of standing there listening to Ralston and uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan and Governor Kemp, uh, you know, condemn that as it was happening it was another example of, um, you know, there was just such a different tone coming from them than from President Trump at that time and from some other Georgia politicians who were sort of speaking to the rioters in a more respectful way or even inciting them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember Governor Kemp calling it un-American and a disgrace. And I it was like one of the few press conferences where we didn't have very many questions. It was just we were all kind of in shock and didn't know what to say. Yeah. Okay. Um, w- there'll be a lot of reporting tomorrow um, on uh, on this anniversary. And again, we will do a live two o'clock show in which we'll certainly uh, talk more about the insurrection and how it has been interpreted in the year since uh, by uh, partisans on both sides. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Greg Lucian, we already talked earlier in the show a little bit about David Perdue and Brian Kemp uh, and their campaign against one another, their fight for the Republican nomination for governor. Uh, but let's go back to it uh, because you reported uh, that, uh, and I'll read the lead, former U.S. Senator David Perdue has loaded his campaign for governor with experienced operatives including several strategists who were once allied with Brian Kemp. It's an indication the former senator's bid to unseat Kemp will be a professional operation not to be taken lightly. And, Greg, that's the first thing I thought about when I read this. Anybody who thinks somehow that David Perdue isn't deadly serious about taking the governor's uh, seat away from Brian Kemp will understand from this article this is the real deal. Yeah, and the, and the veteran politicos, after, after that jolt item came out, they, I got a lot of texts from people saying, holy cow, 
Uh, this is, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of folks realize, even in the political world, um, the team that David Perdue has assembled. Um, Taylor Brown, um, David Perdue's campaign manager, was Kelly Leffler's campaign manager the last cycle, very well-respected um, uh, strategist. Um, he has Kemp's former uh, TV consultant on board. He's got many veterans of Glenn Youngkin's campaign um, as field operatives stationed around the state. And he's got uh, experienced pollsters and media consultants and, and all sorts of uh, and a political director just up and down, and they're still hiring. Um, so, uh, you know, Governor Kemp has a lot of experienced hands as well, um, and, uh, and many people from his, uh, his official office have already moved over to the campaign, including Cody Hall, his, his chief spokesman. Um, but there's going to be kind of an arms race right now for, for talented staffers um, and, and, you know, who aren't going over to the Senate contest in Georgia because there's already a, a beefed-up Herschel Walker campaign on, too. I can hear the car right. of Republican it, strategists driving in from other states to come <laughs> get jobs in Georgia. <laughs> We're watching that in the parking lot right now, Emma. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, all right, let me let's move on to another subject very briefly. Uh, Riley, I know you covered Andre Dickens' inaugural, is swearing in as the new mayor of the city of Atlanta. Just give us what do you think were the what are the highlights? What, what did he say yesterday that struck you as uh, important? You know, Atlanta has uh, this is their 61st mayor, finally. And I think this was kind of a long-awaited moment for a lot of people. And um, the, the inauguration ceremony was at Bobby Dodd Stadium, Georgia Tech, um, Dickens' alma mater. And I thought it was, you know, it was nice to hear a little bit about his past. He talked about being an usher in the stadium when he was in college and, you know, fed that into a quote of he's ushering in this new day for Atlanta. But it, it was this very, the speech ringing with optimism, right? And I I think that's the tone that he needed right now in such a time of uncertainty for Atlanta. We're seeing this rise in violent crime, as we are seeing in other places, too. But, you know, there's such a focus on it here and the Buckhead secession movement and um, his speech needed to have that optimism, I think. But it also had a lengthy list of action items that um, he pledged he was going to do. 250 police officers hired in the first year, you know, 20,000 affordable housing units in eight years. Um, so he he was clear to outline a lot of his plans, and it'll be interesting to see if he's able to hold up to them. Emma, we should point out that Doug Shipman was uh, sworn in as uh, president of city council yesterday. And while we're used to kind of a battle between city council presidents and mayors, it is fascinating that Shipman and Dickens have a pretty long history and have worked together on a number of projects. And Shipman has actually said, I sort of see myself as a chairman of the board. I got to fight for the transparency, but I've also got to do what I can to support the CEO, Mayor Dickens. Yeah, it is interesting. And maybe that's what happens when you, I, I mean, Shipman is an outsider to city government. So his you know, relationships are different than, than past city council presidents we've had. Um, and also, you know, Dickens has has said that he is um, he draws circles, not lines. You know, he's about working with other people. So we'll see how that lasts, though, I will say, um, you know, t- tensions may arise as they <laughs> often do. But for now, yeah, it looks it looks different. Andre, another thing that struck me was that Shirley Franklin 
is the tie that binds between these two. I mean, Andre uh, Dickens and Shirley Franklin have had a long, very close uh, partnership. She's known him since he was a teenage friend of her late son's. Um, and Shipman was hired away from his consulting work by uh, Shirley Franklin to be the first CEO of the Center for Civil and Human, I mean, for, for, for the, uh, yeah, the Center for Civil and Human Rights. So Shirley Franklin uh, reestablishes a certain kind of gravitas that is, she hasn't really been able to, to have uh, in the last couple of administrations. Well, I, I'll say this. Uh, I think that um, uh, Mayor, former Mayor Franklin, um, she, who obviously endorsed Andre very early, uh, has uh, uh, shown that uh, the city uh, probably needed uh, someone who was going to be what Andre brings, and, and part of it was new politics that certainly has a lot of um, credibility uh, with old Atlanta, and that's kind of the way he built himself. And I will say this, uh, finally, that uh, the mayor's number one priority has to be Buckhead, <laughs> because if Buckhead is lost, then the rest of his term is, is really going to be defined by the aftermath of Buckhead. And so I know he has a long list, but uh, that list probably really is uh, one issue. Uh, Greg, uh, very quickly, uh, uh, Dickens did make Buckhead uh, a big part of his speech yesterday. Yeah, and I was there on the frigid Georgia Tech football grounds. And it wasn't just Andre <laughs> Dickens who, who talked about it, but pretty much every speaker mentioned, highlighted unity, highlighted the need for Atlanta to be preserved in, as one city, and uh, and, and if, there's, if there's one argument that Andrew Dickens will make to state lawmakers, it's going to be, give, give me time. He wants time to be able to, to enact that plan, to hire more police officers, get more security cameras up, and have a mo- more robust law enforcement presence. All right, Greg Wustein gets the last word on today's show. Thank you, Greg, for being here. You as well, Emma Hurt, Riley Bunch, Leroy Chapman. Thanks for a terrific conversation. Before we leave, I have one quick personal note. Uh, yesterday, uh, Illinois Congressman Bobby Rush announced that after three decades on the Hill, he was finally retiring his seat. The reason I say it's a personal note is way, way back in the early 70s, um, I got to know Bobby Rush when I was a TV producer in Chicago, and Bobby Rush was, yes, the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, an organization which in those days many people thought of as being radical, revolutionaries, dangerous, armed militants. And yet Bobby and I were able to strike up a pretty positive relationship between a black activist and a white Jewish kid from the northern suburbs. Uh, Many years later, after I'd lost track of Bobby, I was in Washington for the start of a new Congress. I'm going to say 1986, probably. And I saw Bobby Rush walking toward me in the United States Capitol. And I looked and said, what are you doing here? He said, I've been elected to Congress. (laughs) And he went on and served for 30 years. It just shows you that people can grow, evolve, and for 30 years, he's been a very effective congressman uh, for his constituents back in Chicago. So I personally wish Bobby Rush well as he moves into the next phase of his campaign. By the way, he beat Barack Obama when Barack Obama tried to challenge him for that seat. We are out of time uh, for today's show. Again, tomorrow we'll be on at 2 o'clock live. NPR takes over at 9 with uh, coverage of January 6th anniversary tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Yes, wear your mask. Probably an N95. 
and get a booster shot. See you all tomorrow.